Well, turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 23. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God, walking through the book of Leviticus. And you remember this whole entire book takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we've just come through what's known as the holiness code section. And God's giving his people instructions of how they are to live. That came after what we saw with the day of atonement, which redeems them and allows them to come into his presence. So today we're going to be in Leviticus 23. We're looking at God's appointed times. And what you find in Leviticus 23 is that this chapter regulates Israel's calendar. It sets up the yearly festivals that they were supposed to celebrate. So we'll look at the first half of them this week and then we'll finish them next week. So Leviticus chapter 23 and let's start in in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. All right, so this tells us about God's design for time. When God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, he said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons for days and for years. The word seasons means appointed times. So the sun, the moon, and the stars were designed by God to mark the appointed times that he would give. The rhythms of life are designed by God. Now, we today use a Gregorian calendar, which is a, a minor correction of the Julian calendar, which was also a solar calendar. So our calendar is solar. The Julian calendar had a leap year every three years or so. And over time, the seasons started to get off base. So that correction was made. In 1582, they corrected it, although it took about 300 years for everybody that was using that calendar to kind of catch up. So in America, for instance, in 1752, on September 2nd, you would go to bed at night, and when you woke up in the morning, it was September 14th. We skipped 12 days in order to kind of course correct and get back on where the seasons should be in light of the calendar. And we then had a leap year every four years. But the Julian calendar came into being in 46 BC, Okay, so that's a little while just before Jesus is born. Under the rule of Julius Caesar, who's ruling the Roman Empire, um, just in that time before Jesus comes on the scene. But the Jewish people use a different calendar. They operate on a lunisolar calendar. So it's sun and moon. So the year was based on the phases of the moon. Now, if I asked you right now where the moon is in its phases, you probably don't know because we don't have any great need to pay attention to it today. But the Jewish people kept their calendars by the phases of the moon. And you know, the phases of the moon are, you know, it goes through a phase in a little bit shorter time than our typical month. So what they needed to do was they added a leap month every two or three years to kind of keep the months in the proper seasons. Excuse me. But their days and weeks are governed by the sun by day and night. So the year, the months, are operated according to the moon. Day and night is by the sun. And if you remember, for uh, the Jewish people, their days and nights are slightly different than ours. So if you look at our day and night, for instance, 
our day begins at midnight, 12 a.m., and we, we go through 24 hours till the next midnight, and that's when the next day starts. <clears throat> Excuse me. For the Jewish people, they're, um, so, you know, Saturday there, you see 12 to 12. They're offset by about six hours from us. So their day begins at sunset or twilight, and it runs till the next twilight. So when you're hearing things that are supposed to happen on a certain day when you're reading the Bible, that day begins at sunset and runs through till the next sunset. So just kind of have that in the back of your mind as we think about what God is setting up here. Well, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, as God sets up the calendar for Israel, he's giving them a cycle of festivals that all happen at particular times of the year. And it's all part of his plan when on day four of creation week, he places the sun, moon, and stars in their perfect relationship to each other to govern these seasons. And that should point out to us that worship is actually central to how God has designed us as humans. The rhythms that God has given to his people caused them to stop at certain times of the year to remember past events and to look forward to what God had promised. It caused them to look back and be thankful and to meditate on God's character. And not only did they have these annual festivals that happened at a certain time of the year, God gave them a weekly festival, the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, they were to do no work, just worship and rest. Not only were there weekly Sabbaths, but Sabbaths would also fall at various times during the week during certain festivals. So that sets the stage then for the next verse in Leviticus 23 here. And it's the, the first kind of festival that we want to look at, and that is the Sabbath. So look with me at verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, the weekly Sabbath is a memorial of God's work of creation. God set the pattern of working for six days and then, his and then resting on the seventh, and his people are to follow that pattern. So Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So he grounds the Sabbath in creation week. But the Sabbath was also a memorial of the Exodus event. Deuteronomy 5 gives the same Sabbath instructions, but instead of talking about creation, it then says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So which is it? Creation or Exodus? What's the reason for the Sabbath? Well, the reason the Sabbath also recalled the Exodus is that the Exodus was like a second creation event, a new creation. This time, it's the nation of Israel that's being created. And there are a lot of parallels in the story. We don't have time to go into all of them, the parallels between the creation and the Exodus. But just briefly, the spirit or wind of God is acting on the waters. 
the new creation surfaces from the waters. Israel comes up from the Red Sea. The voice of God speaks. God gives his law to his new people. There's a lot of parallels between creation and Exodus. So Sabbath recalls both creation and Exodus. Now, when you get to the Gospels, Jesus has some encounters with Jewish authorities over the issue of the Sabbath. When he and his disciples were confronted because they picked grain and ate it while they were traveling on the Sabbath, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that tells us the Sabbath is intended to be a blessing to man. That's how we're supposed to look at it. When Jesus was confronted for healing a man with a deformed hand on the Sabbath, he asked, wouldn't you rescue a sheep that fell on the Sabbath? Mercy and generosity, which benefit man, can be shown on the Sabbath. And ironically, the response of the religious leaders is that they begin to plot Jesus' murder on the Sabbath. When Jesus was reprimanded for healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, he said that his father was working on the Sabbath and therefore he was too because he's doing his father's work. He was doing the work of his father in redeeming and reversing the effects of sin. Turn with me to Hebrews 4. Excuse me. Hold your place in Leviticus 23 and turn to Hebrews 4. I told Brandon this morning this thing wasn't working right. I don't know why. Uh, <clears throat> Hebrews 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Hold your place in Leviticus 23 and turn to Hebrews 4. At the end of Hebrews 3, the author talks about how God has promised rest in the promised land. But the wilderness generation was unable to enter God's rest. So you have the generation that was rescued from Egypt, but they didn't believe, and so they didn't get to enter God's rest in the promised land. That's what that's talking about. So they didn't believe, therefore they couldn't enter his rest. But now in chapter 4, the author encourages his readers to learn from the mistake of that wilderness generation and to believe what God has said about Jesus. So look at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have, who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
So the picture here is Joshua led the people into the promised land. And if you read the book of Joshua, it says that not one promise of God failed. Every single promise was kept. They received the land just like promised. And so they received rest in the land, but they didn't receive the ultimate rest that that was always a picture of. That ultimate rest is available to anyone who believes in Jesus. We can rest from our works and we can stop trying to earn God's favor. And we can rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. And Sabbath points to that rest. Well, next in Leviticus 23, we see two closely related feasts that are here kind of treated as one, and that's Passover and unleavened bread. This is Leviticus 23, verses 4 through 8. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. That means that particular day is treated as a Sabbath. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. All right. So the Passover story in Exodus is a familiar one. The 10th plague that God caused to fall on Egypt was the death of the firstborn son. God gave instructions to his people, which they obeyed. In all the Israelite homes, the families selected an unblemished lamb, a male, a year old, and they slaughtered it and they placed its blood on the doorposts of their house and the header over the top. And that was a sign that a death had already occurred in that home in place of the firstborn son. So when God came in judgment throughout Egypt, he would see the blood and he would pass over that house. The firstborn son in that home did not die because a substitute had already died in his place. Now, when Israel celebrated the Passover feast each year, they were looking back to God's redemption and rescue of them from Egypt. But the festival also pointed out the need for a substitute to redeem them from the slavery of sin. And of course, that picture is fulfilled in the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God who dies to take our sin penalty. Now, there's so much that could be said about Jesus as the Lamb of God. Let me just limit myself this morning to one or two things. Last week, we saw how the sacrifices that were offered had to be perfect, unblemished sacrifices, without defect. In the Passover story, the Israelites were to select a lamb that was without blemish. And this happened on the 10th of Nisan, okay, the month of Nisan. So on Nisan the 10th, it was lamb selection day. Then on the 14th, the lambs were killed for Passover. We also just read that the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th of Nisan, the day after the Passover um, meal is prepared. The first day of that feast, Feast of Unleavened Bread, was a Sabbath, no matter what day of the week it fell on. 
Okay, so you have some Sabbaths that happen because of the day of the week, Saturday, and you have some Sabbaths that happen because of when they fall in the calendar. It's kind of like our Thanksgiving and Christmas. Thanksgiving is always on a particular Thursday, no matter what calendar date. And Christmas is always on the 25th, no matter what day of the week. Same kind of idea here with these two different kinds of Sabbaths. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but let me show you how I think this matches up with what happened during the week of Jesus' crucifixion. People generally think that Jesus died on a Friday. He's crucified on Good Friday. And then he was raised on Sunday morning. Now, why do people think that Jesus was crucified on a, Saturday, or excuse me, on a Friday? It's because John tells us in his account of what happened, this, John 19, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So you've got three bodies on the cross, the two Jewish brigands and Jesus in the middle, and they have to be taken down and their bodies disposed of before sunset, when the Sabbath begins. Okay, so remember, Jewish days begin at sunset. So that job would be, first of all, it would be work, and you can't do work on the Sabbath. And secondly, you'd be touching dead bodies, which would make you unclean, and you need to wash ceremonially before the Sabbath if you're going to be able to celebrate it. So the bodies were probably taken down around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, people think that Jesus was crucified on a Friday because John says the Sabbath was about to begin. The big problem with this reckoning is that Jesus said he would be in the grave three days and three nights. And while you can count this as three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's definitely only two nights. Now, John also says, though, that it was the day of preparation. Preparation for what? Well, for the Passover meal. So the lamb was killed and prepared on the 14th. And then the meal was eaten that evening which is the beginning of the 15th, okay? Since Jewish days begin and end at sunset, the 14th ends at sunset, then the Passover meal is eaten that evening, which is the beginning of the 15th, and it's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in the month of Nisan, the 15th is a Sabbath, no matter which day of the week it falls on, because Leviticus 23, where we are, verse 7, says that the first day of the feast, which is always the 15th, is a Sabbath. So many people believe that Jesus was crucified in AD 33. That's the most popular understanding of when Jesus was crucified. But some say AD 30. I'm in the minority, and this is not a big deal. It's not like we can't fellowship together if you think it was a different year or something like that. But I just want to explain why I think this and why I think it, it lines up with what God is teaching us through these festivals, okay? So in the year A.D. 30, here's how this particular month, or this particular week, excuse me, in Nisan falls, okay? The 14th of Nisan begins Wednesday evening and goes through Thursday. That would be the day of preparation. The 15th of Nisan begins Thursday evening and goes through the day Friday. That would be when the Passover meal was held, Okay, Thursday evening, it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which means it's a Sabbath, because the first day of the feast is always a Sabbath. 
The 16th of Nisan begins Friday evening, and every Friday evening through Saturday, every week, is the weekly Sabbath. So what that means is in A.D. 30, you have two Sabbaths back to back. So if Jesus was crucified in A.D. 30, then he was crucified on Thursday and was in the grave Thursday evening, Friday evening, Saturday evening, and rose on Sunday. Now there's one more detail, a couple more details that make this interesting in light of the Passover story. God told the Israelites in Egypt to choose a lamb without blemish on the 10th of Nisan. Okay? The 10th is lamb selection day. And then they held that lamb till the 14th when it was killed. In the Passover celebrations in Jesus' day, the lambs would be brought to the temple and inspected on the 10th of Nisan. That's lamb selection day. In AD 30, the 10th of Nisan falls on a Sunday. This is the day that we call Palm Sunday. It's the day of the triumphal entry. When the crowds acclaim Jesus, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And where does Jesus go? He goes directly to the temple. But he's the one doing the inspecting. And the Jewish people and the temple fail the inspection. But then, for the next several days, Jesus is inspected by everyone. He's examined by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. That's Mark 11. He's examined by the Pharisees and the Herodians, Mark 12. He's examined by the Sadducees, Mark 12. He's examined by the Pharisees again, Matthew 22. He's examined by Annas, the former high priest, John 18. He's examined by Caiaphas, the current high priest, that's Matthew 26. He's examined by Pilate, the Roman governor, Luke 23. And Pilate says what? I find no fault in this man. He's examined by Herod in Luke 23. He's examined by Pilate again. And Pilate's wife says that Jesus is righteous. That's Matthew 27. The Jews call out for his death, though he is without blemish. And when Pilate asks what he's done, all they say is, crucify him. Pilate again states, I have found no guilt in him deserving of death. Jesus is examined by the crowd while he's on the cross and they mock him and deny that he is who he says he is. God the Father, however, examines him and finds him righteous, a perfect sacrifice. And we know that because God rends the temple veil in two and opens the way to his presence. And then finally, the Gentile Roman centurion, having examined Jesus while he's on the cross, says, truly this man was the son of God. There's a certain irony in the fact that all of the Jewish rulers and the Jewish crowd sought to find fault in the spotless lamb of God. But the Gentiles, Pilate, Pilate's wife, the centurion, all testify to Jesus' identity and his perfection. Well, that's Passover. We're also talking in these verses, though, about unleavened bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread began at the same time as Passover. God told the Israelites in Egypt, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. So they were to get rid of the leaven, the yeast, in their homes. Every last trace of it had to be gone. You cleaned out the entire cupboards, every crumb of yeast or any bread that had been made with it is gone. 
Leaven or yeast is a kind of unique picture in scripture. Especially with this feast in mind, you might simply think of leaven as representing something bad. And it can, right? You're supposed to get rid of all the leaven. And here in this feast, it is representing something negative. But leaven can also represent something good. And if we get our minds around that, then the purpose of the Feast of Unleavened Bread becomes a little more clear. In his ministry, Jesus warned about the leaven of the Pharisees, religious hypocrisy. That's Luke 12. And he warned about the leaven of the Sadducees, liberalism, Matthew 16. And he spoke about the leaven of Herod, moral compromise, pursuit of worldly power. That's Mark 8. Those are all bad things. But Jesus also said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's Matthew 13. So what do all those illustrations have in common? What's the idea of influence? The pervasive effect of one part on the whole. That's what leaven or yeast does. You mix it into the dough and it makes the whole lump of dough rise. So what was the point in Egypt at the Passover when God told them to get rid of the leaven. Well, God was telling the Israelites that they were leaving Egypt behind. They were to get rid of the influence of Egypt in their lives. They were not to be like Egypt. They were to be holy, unique, distinct, different. They were God's people. and They were to be shaped by God's redemption and God's law. And so they purged every last bit of yeast out of their homes and they started as a new nation, a new creation. And when was the leaven removed? It was removed at the same time as the death of the Passover lamb. So every year as the Israelites prepared to celebrate the Passover and the death of the lamb in their place, they were also cleansing their homes of leaven. This is picturing for us the leavening effects of sin as it affects our whole lives. Just like the leaven was cleansed at the death of the Passover lamb, Jesus takes our sin to the grave with him in his death. So when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he had become aware that they were tolerating immorality in their church and he confronts them about it. And he writes 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we're supposed to examine every corner of our lives to get rid of sin, get rid of every worldly influence, just like the Israelites cleansed the leaven from their homes. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th of Nisan. And on the 16th of Nisan, the first fruits of the barley harvest were brought to the temple. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. <clears throat> but 50 days after this, the Feast of Weeks began. We're going to talk about that feast next week. We know that feast in the New Testament by the name of Pentecost. Okay? And as at the Feast of Weeks, a leavened offering was brought to the temple. 
Now we're going to talk about the Feast of Weeks next week, but for now I just want to point out this. In this offering, leaven is a good thing. So at the first Pentecost, after Jesus' death and resurrection, what was different? What or who arrived? Well, the Spirit of God arrived. And the Spirit is the leaven that causes the kingdom of God to grow and spread. It may look like a small thing, but over time, God is causing the kingdom of God to grow, just like Jesus said. So 2,000 years ago, you had a handful of followers of Jesus, and now there are hundreds of millions of Christians around the world. The kingdom of God is growing through the power of the Spirit. So out with the old leaven and in with the new out with the old influences of sin and in with the new influence of the Spirit and the growth of the kingdom of God. And that then leads us to the last festival we'll look at this morning here in Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14, the festival of first fruits. Starting in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So you'll notice that verse 11 says that this was to happen on the day after the Sabbath. Well, which Sabbath? The Sabbath that marked the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That means that this happens on the 16th of Nisan, unless, of course, the 16th itself fell on a weekly Sabbath, then it would happen on the 17th, because that would be the day after the Sabbath. So the first fruits were the beginning of the cereal grain harvests. The Israelites were to bring the first part of this harvest to God, and that marked two things. Number one, it's a reminder that it all belongs to God in the first place. And number two, since you're bringing the very first part of the harvest to him and giving it to him, it's an act of trust that he's going to bring the rest of the harvest. We're trusting God for this. And as far as the calendar goes, it also marks the beginning of the 50-day countdown to the Feast of Weeks. Now, outside Jerusalem, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley, you can see it right there. On those slopes, there was a special field known as the Ashes Field. And there's a crop of barley that is grown there. And sheaves of barley were gathered from this field, and then they're offered in the temple on behalf of the people on the morning of the 16th of Nisan. And then the families also brought their own first fruits offerings. So this first part of the harvest was seen as God's promise that he would eventually provide a full harvest. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to one more place. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Okay, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this passage was actually being discussed in our house earlier this week because one of our kids who's studying logic was examining Paul's argument here to see what logical steps he took in making his case. But in this section, what Paul has done is he's restated the gospel. And there are people in Corinth who are denying that there will be a resurrection of the dead. We have a lot of people today that deny that too. And Paul's arguing that the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead shows that there will be a resurrection of God's people. He says that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain and our hope is essentially worthless. Okay, so pick it up with me in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Paul says that Jesus in his resurrection is the firstfruits. Just like the barley seeds get planted in the ground and then they reappear as the barley harvest, so too Jesus was buried in the earth and then reappeared as the first fruits of all who will one day be raised. Just like the first fruits offering was a promise that God would bring the full harvest, Jesus' resurrection gives us hope and confidence that one day we too will be raised. And look at the calendar of crucifixion week. If Jesus was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, and the 15th is the Sabbath that begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then the 16th, which is when first fruits would normally be offered, this 16th is the weekly Sabbath. So first fruits would then be offered on the 17th, which is Sunday the first day of the week, and it's the day of Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus enters the temple on Lamb Selection Day, the 10th of Nisan. He's crucified on Preparation Day when all the Passover lambs are being slaughtered on the 14th of Nisan. He's in the tomb for the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread because he's taken our sin to the grave with him. That's the 15th of Nisan. And then he's raised on first fruits, the 17th. Do you remember what I said at the beginning about the sun, the moon, and the stars being put in their places for God's appointed time? On day four of creation, God knew exactly what he was doing. It was all planned. So we've seen these four festivals. Let me just review for us what each one tells us. The Sabbath is a picture of rest. It points to the rest that Christ gives us by accomplishing our salvation for us. We don't work for our salvation. He gives us rest. That means we're called to live in that rest. God's built a reminder of that rest right into our weekly rhythms so we don't forget it. So live in his rest. The Passover tells us that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who dies in our place. As our substitute, he's the perfect lamb without blemish, without defect. We can have confidence in 
his sacrifice in our place because of his perfect righteousness. That means we're called to trust his righteousness. We can have confidence before God, not because of our own righteousness, because he was the perfectly righteous sacrifice for us. And when we share the Lord's Supper together, as we will this morning, we're recalling that substitutionary death in our place. The Feast of Unleavened Bread says, out with the old leaven and in with the new leaven. We are to purge the sin from our lives. Jesus took the penalty for our sin to the grave with him. And we are now to get the Egypt out of our lives, get the influence of the world out of our lives. Instead, we're to live with the influence of the Spirit. We're to seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is growing in the world by the power of the Spirit. And the first fruits offering tells us that Jesus' resurrection is God's promise that we too will be raised. We can have the confidence and hope for the future that comes from knowing that God kept his promise to raise Jesus. And he'll keep his promise to raise us too. So we don't need to fear death. We don't need to live as those who have no hope. We have a living hope. And when we see how all of these festivals came to their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we realize that God is absolutely sovereign over history. It unfolds according to his plan. It's a plan that was put in place from the very creation of the world, literally written into the heavens themselves. That is a God you can trust. Lord, I pray that as we consider what you have taught your people and what we learn as we read about these festivals, that you would impress on us, first of all, the centrality of Jesus to all of human history. The very way that you've designed the sun, moon, and stars was there to point us to Jesus. The festivals that you gave to the Jewish people were pointing us, leading us forward to Jesus. He's the centerpiece of human history. He's the one around whom it all revolves. Help us not to lose sight of that. Help us to be grateful for our Passover lamb who dies in our place and who takes our sin to the grave with him and then rises again with that promise that we too will one day rise. And we thank you that you're sovereign, that you're in control, that we can trust you. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.